The gospel reverses the wisdom of the world. Our text this morning is Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 26. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon the hearer and upon the preacher this day. We pray that you would come by the power of your spirit, that your word would be preached accurately and heard accurately, that all might do your word. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. I once worked in sales, and I was real good at it. We'd do whatever we needed to do to get the sale, the money, and the power that came with it. We'd lie, we'd cheat, and we'd crush the competition no matter what it took. But as a young Christian, the Word of God came to bear and brought a convicting reversal in my worldview. Christians are to live and act differently. And this morning in the Gospel of Luke, we'll see that the ways of the kingdom are different as Jesus presents reversed epiphany. Reversed epiphany. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 17. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. Can you guys hear me in the back? Been going without mics here for the last couple weeks, just making sure. It says in there in verse 17, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Now the question arises, is this the Sermon on the Mount? Is it the Sermon on the Mount from another perspective, or is it another sermon altogether? I'm not quite sure, but Jesus would have preached on the same themes. Jesus, like any traveling preacher, would have had a, a set of teachings that he would have gone over again and again. I believe he's preaching in Galilee, and we've got all these different types of people coming. Jesus had just selected his apostles from among his disciples. If you look at verse 12 of the same chapter, you see this. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray all night and continued to pray to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and he chose from them 12 whom he'd named apostles. Now he's got his 12 apostles from the larger retinue of the disciples. And he begins to teach here. And I believe he's teaching first and foremost to his 12 apostles and then to the larger group of disciples. Jesus, I believe, is in Galilee when he's doing this, and there's Judeans there, people from Judea, the province of Judea, which is Israel proper at this time, people from the region of Jerusalem. But notice here as well, there's people from Tyre and Sidon. We know from the other Gospels, some of these people coming down from Tyre and Sidon are Gentiles. They're Phoenicians, and they as well have heard and now come to hear and come to be healed. Verse 18. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and it healed them all. Jesus, when he's engaging in the work of exorcism, does an exorcism that is complete. Unclean spirits leave, and the people are cured. Now notice this. People are coming up and touching Jesus. And power is going out from Jesus, and they're being healed in the Old Covenant people were not to approach or touch things or places where God was. Think about this for a minute. Moses is wandering in the wilderness, engaging in his work as a shepherd, and he sees a bush that's on fire, not necessarily an unusual thing. Lightning strikes in the desert and bushes catch on fire. But remember, he saw the bush and it was burning, but it wasn't being consumed. It just kept burning and burning. And so he draws near. And we read these words in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 5. The voice of God comes, and it said to him, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, 
for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Moses sees a burning bush. He approaches it and God says, stop right there. Don't come any nearer. Take your sandals off for your feet are standing on holy ground. In other words, don't draw too close and don't touch anything. And then when the people of God are delivered out of their slavery in Egypt and they come to Mount Sinai, and God comes down and gives them his law. We read these words in Exodus 19 and verse 12. And you shall set limits for the people around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. Again, where God is is holy. Don't get too close. Don't touch anything or you'll be put to death we see something similar with the tabernacle and later with the temple when it's prepared to go and everything's been consecrated and set apart and the shekinah glory the spirit of god comes and fills the temple and everybody falls on their faces the power of it is so powerful that the priests themselves are driven out don't come too close don't touch these things but what do you see here people are touching jesus People are touching Jesus and power is going out from him and they're being healed. They touch Jesus, God in the flesh, where Jesus is, the holiness of God is. And he's saying, touch me. And they're touching and he's healing them all. Jesus told Thomas to touch him. God wants you to draw near through the Lord Jesus Christ. For we live in the new covenant when Christ has come in flesh, has died resurrected and has ascended to the right hand of the father reigning and ruling over the cosmos and saying to us as the people of god come draw near can i hear an amen to that amen. verse 20 and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of god blessed are the poor matthew adds in spirit now friends it's not wrong to have wealth it's not wrong to be rich in fact, it's a blessing. Perhaps you're earning more because you're following after the ways of God. So it's not wrong to be rich, but we must have a posture of spiritual poverty. By having a posture of spiritual poverty, by getting low, by seeing ourselves for who we truly are, we see more clearly the ways of God. Wealth can often cause us to be distracted to the things of God. The powers that be are rich in spirit and rich in worldly goods. Now, if you look at our text here, you've got something similar to what we call a couplet in literature. We've got one statement, and then we go down, and we see the opposite side of that statement in the same text. Look at verse 20. We see here in verse 20, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Go down to verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. The rich see no need for God's mercy as it truly is. The rich and powerful in our culture, the celebrities and the political leaders are so lifted up. They're so, they're so rich in themselves, they think they can tell Christians what to believe about their own religion. They tell Christians what they should believe about the word of God as though they're experts on these things. Well-funded mainline denominational clergy celebrate abortion on demand and push for an LGBTQ agenda. Let's go on to verse 21 in the first part. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Friends, all hunger at the end of the day is ultimately God hunger. 
If you're hungry for food, you're going to be a lot closer to God. Our pantries are full, are they not? I got tons of food at home. I'm not even prepared for the apocalypse, and I've probably got about 30 days worth of food. I've got dry food stuff, so I got pasta that'll last weeks and weeks. I've got all kinds of food stuff in the refrigerator that'll last weeks and weeks. I've got stuff inside the freezer that'll last for months and months. But when you're looking for your next meal, when you're hungry for your day's wages so you can go buy bread, and you're thinking, will I have enough tomorrow? You'll draw closer to God, all right. And all hunger is ultimately God hunger. For those who see and act upon this hunger, Jesus says they will be satisfied. But look at this, the opposite side of this in verse 25 in the first part. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry, fat, and flaccid. The full see no need for Jesus and his kingdom. They're full, and they have no needs, thank you very much. They don't have any spiritual needs. They've, they've made the things up in their mind. They don't need you to teach them the word of God. They don't need to listen to the word of God. They don't need to listen to the church fathers. They don't need to listen to the Bible. They're fat. They're happy. They're spiritually puffed up. And our land is fat and happy. And secularism is the opiate of the masses. Going on to the second part of verse 21. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Those who weep in the context in which Jesus is speaking to in the first century in Israel, see Israel as she truly is. She's abused. She's dressed in rags. She's longing for a righteous king and a deliverer. She's abused by wicked rulers, both Jews and Gentiles. In the first century, the Jewish class always gave a good talk and a good show about not wanting to be ruled over by the Gentiles. But they drew close to them. They made contracts with the Romans. They ran plantations, and they had all kinds of workers on them that they exploited, and you see them in the parables of Jesus. They paid the people little, and they extracted as much wealth as they could out of them. The religious class abused the people, made them feel guilty for sins that were no sins, made them pay extra for sacrifices that they ripped the people off of, and then they were also ruled over by the Gentiles. Israel in the first century has never actually returned from exile. They were exiled off into Babylon. And then the Persians ruled over them. And then the Greeks did. And for a brief moment in time, at the time of the Hasmoneans with the Maccabees, they had their kingdom for a few short decades. And then the Romans came and ruled over them. So in some sense, they're still in exile in their own land. And Caesar says he's Lord. And Caesar makes you pay taxes and the people that contract to collect those taxes can charge a little extra, whatever they want. And so the people are abused. The righteous shall laugh. The righteous shall laugh now, I submit. You can have joy in the midst of your trials and sufferings because you stand in the power of the Holy Spirit and you see the end of all things. They may be able to take your life, but they can't take your spirit they may be able to take your life in this life, but they don't take eternal life away from you that you've received in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we shall all laugh on the last day at the feast. Going on to verse 25 in the second part. We've got the other side of this. So, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Verse 25 in the second part. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. The ungodly laugh now. They laughed at Jesus on the cross. But they will weep. They will weep when Jerusalem and the temple come down. They will weep 
on the last day. The false teachers, the godless, the demons will not be laughing on the last day. Going on to verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you. Let me read that again. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And then Jesus says this, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Do you believe that, friends? See, a lot of times we tell ourselves, we tell our children, that being a Christian is always going to be easy, that everybody's going to love you, and that you're not going to have trials and troubles. But Jesus says, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you, when they spurn your name, not for doing what's wrong, but on account of the Son of Man. When you stand for what is right, and it doesn't mean you're going out of your way to, to go and get in people's faces, but just quietly trying to live your life as a Christian, sometimes the culture butts up against that and asks you what you believe. And then you'll find out what the words of Jesus mean. The leaders of Israel hated Jesus. The pagan rulers of Rome hated Jesus. They were pretty okay with religion. They were okay with you doing whatever you were doing over there, but every once in a while, bowing the knee to Caesar as though he was God, offering that pinch of incense to Caesar who calls himself the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and Christians would say, no, can't do that. And then Rome hated Jesus. The godless rulers of China hate Jesus. Our godless culture leaders hate Jesus. The PC mob even hates people who talk about Jesus, like Jordan Peterson. He's an interesting character. You've been following him? Puts a lot of stuff in his books about the Christian faith, sometimes more than even Christian writers put in. He seems to be drawing closer and closer to the faith. He's not far from the kingdom, I submit. And yet the closer he gets, the more people hate him, the more they revile him, the more they spurn his name, strangely outside the faith, but on account of Jesus but Jesus says, rejoice. Why? Because opposition to righteousness is an effective gauge to know where you stand. And you might ask, how are we to live? What are we supposed to do? How do we know what the way of God is? Well, the Word of God tells us. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, for example. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Kids, you want to know what God wants from you? It's right here. Read your Bible. Know your Bible. Know the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments tell us how we are to live as Christians. And Jesus ultimately summarizes it in the Great Commandment, which is what? To love the Lord your God, basically with everything, your being, your fullness. And to love your neighbor as yourself and to know the word of God, and to stand upon the word of God. So when people come against you, you know what you believe, and you stand, and you can rejoice in the midst of it. But the flip side of that is in verse 26. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. False prophets always offer the easy cure and are spoken of well. Why? Because they tell people what they want to hear. If you're a false prophet, there's a pretty good chance you can get on Oprah. And everybody will clap for everything you say. Because you'll be saying what people want to hear. You won't be saying what people need to hear. And you might ask, what about Paul? Paul says something different from this, does he not? 
when he speaks of the qualifications for elders and deacons in 1 uh, Timothy chapter 3, he says, Moreover, speaking of an officer, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Paul told us to try to live quiet and peaceable lives. Paul told us to as much as possible be a good neighbor and to live a quiet and peaceable life. But I'll say this, the kingdom will always reach a crossing point in places where the gospel is not honored. Jesus reached that crossing point in Israel and we are reaching that point in our time and place in America. When the culture goes against the word of God, we must say, Jesus is Lord. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. Sometimes people aren't going to like you. They're going to say bad things about you. And they might try to dox you and get you kicked out of your job. But what does that mean to eternity? What does it mean to standing for what's right and good? I think we'd all, at the end of the day, rather have been persecuted for what's good and right than to take the easy way and decades from now with our bank accounts full to realize we could have taken a stand for Jesus. Someday deep in the future, when the gospel has penetrated all the deepest, darkest reaches of Asia and Africa, when the sons of Islam have bowed the knee to King Jesus, when the word of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea, our saga right here at King's Cross Church, as a fierce and holy people. Our saga of standing for Jesus and his kingdom in a day of darkness will be told. A strange paradox has emerged with Jews who survived the Holocaust. An Israeli study shows that Holocaust survivors, despite emerging from the camps in horrible physical condition, actually live seven years longer than those who did not experience the horrors of the death camps. One conclusion is that these people came to an end of themselves and saw life as a gift. The one who hears Jesus' words and believes them is a person who has come to the end of themselves and sees that life is a gift from God. They're poor. They're hungry. They're those who weep. They're those who are hated. It's a reversed epiphany from the world where everything is power I get to tell everyone what they think and what they do. Everything is money. Got to go get on the Forbes most wealthy list. And everything is popularity. I want everyone on Twitter to love me. But God's ways run counter to the world. And this morning, in the Gospel of Luke, we've seen reversed epiphany. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. For sending your son into the world, a world that was twisted, a world filled with sin. And your son came and turned the world upside down and is reversing the curse even under our feet right now. We thank you for the work of your son. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And I've heard from the Lord through his word.